All right, so we're in 1 John 4, 1 through 6. So there's this man I knew uh, many years ago. Uh, I'm going to call him Gus. It's not his real name. Um, he's, he's in heaven now, so he probably wouldn't mind, but uh, maybe his family would. Um, Gus had a, a wife. Let's call her Frida. Uh, Gus was a really good guy, really friendly guy, very faithful and devout. Uh, and after he passed away, somebody who knew both of us told me a story about him that I didn't know. He said, you know, it's probably you didn't realize this because you were a little kid when this was so, but Gus was really, really, really obsessed with communism. He said, you know, we, we all... We all just we all knew that communism was a threat and a problem that was in the news every day. But poor old Gus, he just saw a communist under every rock. In fact, it got to where we almost couldn't couldn't have him in Sunday school because that's all he wanted to talk about. And uh, so he said, in fact, the the joke was when Gus wasn't around, people would say, you know, old Gus, he he thinks pretty much everybody on earth is a communist except him and Frida. And uh, sometimes he's not too sure about Frida. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good story. And, and I know there were people like that that, that just got, became obsessed with that threat. It doesn't, however, mean just because there were people who took it overboard that communism wasn't real or that it wasn't a, a terrible thing that ruined the lives of millions of people around the world, that it wasn't something that we had to be on guard of against in this country. Now, I say that to say this. You may not be aware of this, but if you go on the Internet... I could probably just stop there. But if you go on the internet, there's a whole range of people who have decided that it's their job to sniff out heresy in the church. And for instance, there's a whole gang of people who've decided to try to run Beth Moore out of the ministry. They've decided she's a, she's a false teacher and they, they do everything they can to hound her. And that's probably true of any false, any false, any famous uh, author or preacher or teacher you can name. But just because there are people like this who go overboard, who, who find fault with anything that a, a preacher or teacher says, who, uh, who make it their mission to make these particular teachers miserable, just because that's true doesn't mean that false teachers don't exist. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be on the lookout, on guard, against false teaching in the church. The simple fact that it's mentioned in every book of the New Testament in one way or another, tells me that God wanted to be sure we knew this was something we needed to watch out for. In fact, I'm going to go further than that. The fact that it's in every book in the New Testament tells me that you and I, even if we go to, quote-unquote, the right church our whole lives, we're going to run into it at some point or another. And we need to be ready. We need to know what to do and how to handle it. So that's what John is talking about in 1 John. Remember the whole, in 1 John 4, remember the whole book of 1 John is his response to false teachers that have abandoned the church, have started their own movement, and it has left those who were left behind saying, are we on the wrong track here? Is there something wrong with us? And, and so John writes this to say, I want you to know that you have eternal life. I want you to know that you are on the right track that you are headed towards the, the proper goal. And these other people, they're not even part of us. They never were part of us. They just had us fooled for a while. So when he gets to chapter 4, he gets directly into this idea of false teaching. Now, I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to read you something else. So 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you see in your notes, I've, I've referenced an article by a man named Tim Challies. He's a, a preacher uh, in Canada. He writes some, some interesting stuff. I found this article helpful. He said there are seven kinds of false teachers in the church today. And the first one he lists is the heretic. So in 2 Peter 2.1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The heretic is someone who their goal is to change the teaching of Scripture, to add to or take away from or twist in some way the teaching of Scripture. They have an agenda. They have an idea. They think they know better than God, in a sense. Now, I'll be honest with you, and you may think I'm naive, but I've been a Baptist all my life, and I haven't encountered many of these in Baptist churches because Southern Baptists just tend to care more about Scripture than some other denominations. The average Southern Baptist church member knows their Bible pretty well. I would say that if your life group teacher this next Sunday said something during his lesson or her lesson that wasn't biblical, I'd probably hear about it before the end of the day. Now, knowing the people of this church, they would say it in a nice way. They'd say something like, well, I don't know that he meant to say it this way, but this is what came out. But you would be concerned. You wouldn't just let it go. And so outright heretics... Choose to go to softer targets, is what I would say, than the typical Southern Baptist church. However, you will see them all over the place, and especially today, since the internet is a thing, and since anybody with a laptop, anytime, anybody with a keyboard can put their ideas out there, these kinds of thoughts, these kinds of teachings are all over the place, and they can slip into your life. Uh, I will just tell you about something that happened back in the 1990s, before the internet, there was this group of scholars called the Jesus Seminar. That was the title they gave themselves. Some of you may remember this. This is when I was in seminary, so I was paying a lot of attention to this kind of thing. These were professional theologians. These were men who taught at seminaries and Bible colleges and uh, mostly up north and in Europe, but they were professional Bible scholars who all believed that the Bible's narrative about Jesus was not accurate. In fact, they would get together and they would take apart each one of the Gospels and say, you know, one guy around the table would say, well, I think this verse of, of Mark 3 is accurate and the rest is, is baloney. And the others would say, okay, well, I, I agree with you, but I would also add verse 6. I think that'll work too. And no, no, they'd debate that. And then they'd come up with their own idea of, of what the, the truth actually was about Jesus. And so every time they met, there would be big headlines cover of Time or a big, big article in Newsweek or something on the TV news, and it would say, Bible scholars now say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Bible scholars now say Jesus wasn't really divine. Bible scholars say Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. And it just, of course, being on a seminary campus, we, it just drove us crazy. What Bible scholars? Who are they? But this is what I'm talking about. There is 
There is heresy in the world, and we need to be aware of it, and we must confront it. We should be gracious, but we should be firm. We should be accurate. Then there's the charlatan. This is another kind of false teacher he lists. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. It says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now think about the Apostle Paul writing that last phrase, knowing all that he gave up to become an apostle of Jesus Christ. I mean, he lived in constant poverty and need and struggle from the day he got saved, and yet he knew there were guys out there who were preaching the gospel for profit, who were fleecing the flock. There have always been people like this. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, we read the story of Simon the sorcerer, who, who did his work among the Samaritans and wowed them with his tricks, and then Along comes Philip preaching the gospel, and suddenly all these people come to Christ. And Simon says, well, I need some of that too. And he supposedly gets saved, but then he sees Peter show up and lay hands on people and they're healed, and the Holy Spirit enters into them. And Simon says, well, here's a bunch of money. Will you give me that power? And you remember what Peter said, let your money perish with you. So the charlatan goes back to biblical times, this idea that people, can, people are going to use the gospel or use the ministry of the gospel to make, uh, to make riches for themselves. I mean, obviously, we don't have to go down the road of, of listing the televangelists in our own time that have been exposed for this. Uh, it is important. I hate to talk about this, but it is important to know the financial propriety or lack thereof of the teachers you listen to. It's important to know, does that person uh, control his own salary? Does he have a board who controls that? If he does, are his family members on that board, right? One of the things Billy Graham got right early on is he said, I'm not going to touch the money. The money's going to be by a board that I don't choose, and and they're going to decide my salary, and, and to the end of his days, he, he did not get rich off of his preaching. So uh, watch out for the charlatan. Number three is the prophet. Now, are prophets a biblical thing? Yes. What I mean when I say prophet, this is someone who says, I know the Bible says this, but I have an extra revelation. I have a word from the Lord. It's not in the Scriptures. It may even con- contradict what the Scriptures say, but listen to me, I have a word from the Lord. So uh, Revelation 22, 18 through 19, right close to the end of the, bo- of the Bible says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's some serious stuff. God will take you away. God will take you out of the picture if you're going to add to or take away from his word. Now, false prophets are as old a tradition as mankind itself. Remember, what did the serpent do in the garden? He whispered in the ears of Adam and Eve and said, well, I know God said this, but let me tell you what's really true, right? I know God said, don't, don't eat the, uh, the, tree of the, fruit of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but did he tell you what will happen if you do? 
I mean, it'll be great. You'll know everything. Well, they ate of the tree, and that didn't happen. The devil is the original false prophet. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, Moses tells the people, if a prophet comes out and says, hey, I had this dream, I had this vision, and here's what's going to happen. You write that down, because if it doesn't happen, you never listen to that man again. And even if it does happen, according to Deuteronomy 13, if he, if he predicts something and it does come to pass, or if he does some supernatural sign, but his message is, hey, let's go worship these other gods, then you reject him. False prophets are something we need to watch out for. Now, is it possible for people today to receive a word from the Lord if somebody comes to you and says, I believe the Lord wanted me to tell you this? Yes, it's possible. God can do whatever He wants. But we need to be very careful. Always measure anything that someone says against the Word of God. God is not going to contradict His Word. And I, I personally am always a little skeptical whenever someone says, the Lord told me, because it is far too easy for a human being, whether a preacher or, or a layperson, far too easy for people to interpret their own feelings, their own desires, as the Word of God, as the will of God. So if someone says, the Lord told me this to tell you, you can say, thank you, brother, thank you, sister, but I'm going to pray about it. If he's telling you that, he hadn't told me yet. So I need to make sure this, is, this really is from the Lord before I act on it. All right? Number four, there's the abuser. In Jude 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And I also, I said, see also 2 Timothy 3, 6, where it talks about these false teachers who, in Paul's words, work their way into the homes of weak-willed women and exploit them. Um, now, I, I, I bragged on us as Southern Baptists earlier, but here, here's where we need to confess, because as you probably know by now, we, over the last few decades, our denomination as a whole has not done a good job of policing the predator in the pulpit. And it's cost us. It's hurt people. It has driven people away from the church. In a sense, we were so concerned about doctrine, we didn't protect the sheep from the man who might preach the truth, but he doesn't live it, who's preying on someone else, on a man, on a woman, on a child. That is a false teacher as well. That is someone we need to watch out for. Part of the problem is we have this exalted view of the pastorate, which you would think I'd be happy about, and most of the time I am. But a pastor, a preacher, a Bible study teacher is just a fellow sinner. They're a fellow sinner who's called by God to do something important, and that's why we need to pray for them and support them and encourage them. But their word is their word. Their life is their life, and they must be held accountable just like any other believer. What often happens is a man, and it's almost always a man, in a position of authority like this, will come to think, I deserve a little something for myself. And the people in the pews feel like, well, I don't want to hurt the church. I saw this thing that concerns me, but I don't want to hurt the reputation of our church. 
I don't want to be in the position of accusing God's anointed. And I'm just telling you, we have to be courageous. And we have to call out evil where we see it. Number five, there's the divider. In Jude 18 and 19, he writes, In the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. It is these who cause divisions. In my own home church, long before I was born, um, but when my grandfather was a young man, there was a pastor who came along who split the church over the most ridiculous of issues. You're not going to believe this. He believed that it was a sin to feed people at church. It was a sin to have food. To him, if you brought out, uh, well, let me just start with this. My grandfather was the youth leader at the church. Every Friday night or, or Sunday night or whenever they gathered together, he would pull out the volleyball net and the volleyball and he'd bring a big case of Dr. Pepper and some Snickers bars. The Dr. Pepper man stopped at my grandpa's house, y'all. This, this is how much Dr. Pepper he, he poured into those kids. Um, he wanted to gather every kid in that area so they would show up so he could teach them the Bible so that he could pray for them. Well, this pastor comes along and says, if you've got to give them a, a, a soft drink and a Snickers bar, what's the difference between you and the people who were, who were selling things in the temple? Ended up splitting the church, believe it or not, over that. And my grandfather, of course, later in life, came down with Alzheimer's. And I remember in, in his last days when he could still talk, it's like that was what he kept remembering, that moment, that period of time. It made me so sad that I'd go see him, and at some point in every conversation, he'd bring that story up. It's like he never really recovered from that wound of, of having a pastor that would accuse him in that way. There are, as we said Sunday, there are times when the peace needs to be disturbed. It's not unity at all costs. That's not the message of Scripture. There are times when hard truth needs to be spoken. But even then, it needs to be spoken in love. And there are people who enjoy conflict. There are people who love stirring up trouble. And those people need to repent because God's will for His church is that we would love one another, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would be united around the things that matter, the things that are central to the gospel. And then number six, this is, this is Tim Challey's uh, title, not mine. He calls it The Tickler, which sounds like... Uh, a, a torture guy in a, in a 50s horror movie. But uh, that was the tingler, wasn't it? Some of y'all remember that. So 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Having itching ears. That's where the, this idea of the tickler comes from. He, he's thinking of people who want to have their ears tickled, right? Or scratched. This is feel-good preaching. This is preaching that doesn't challenge us, but just simply tells us, you're great, God wants nothing but good for you, and everything you try will succeed. It's also people who are guided more by their secular politics than they are by the Scriptures, who bend their preaching to fit their politics instead of bending their politics to fit 
the scripture. And so that can be either right or left. That can be someone uh, who looks at the Bible and says, well, you know, all lifestyles are perfectly valid, but that's coming from a left-centered lifestyle. And it, it could be somebody who is coming to the Bible and says, well, you know, I know all this stuff about taking care of the poor and, 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 but no, that's for, that's for back then. We're, we're going to focus on morality and, and that's bending the scriptures to fit their politics instead of the other way around. Basically, it comes down to this. If your God hates all the same people you hate, then you've made God into your image instead of the other way around. Let that sit with you for a while. Good preaching should sometimes be painful to hear. And I think y'all get that because sometimes you come up to me and say, ooh, that was rough. And, but then you say, thank you. So I take that to mean that you agree with me that good preaching should sometimes hurt to hear. The Word of God should always challenge us. If you have a God who never contradicts you, you don't have a relationship with God. In any relationship, that person has to have the ability to tell you you're wrong, or it's not a real relationship. And then the last one he lists is the speculator. 1 Timothy 1, 3-4 Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And, and I've known pastors and Bible teachers who they, they have a, a fascination with a particular uh, secondary issue of Scripture. I, I knew a pastor who was, his pet issue was that Jesus didn't die on a Friday, he died on a Thursday. And he would talk about that at least once a year from the pulpit. He would try to convince people that it was, there's not such thing as Good Friday, it's, it's Good Thursday. And I would say, brother, what difference does it make? I don't think that's a, a tremendous harm. But what about the guys who've decided they know when Jesus is going to come back and who stand up on a pulpit or, or publish it that it's October the 4th, 2023, this is what I'm talking about. It's speculation. It's replacing the actual truth that sets people free with our own speculations. Does that get you more attention? Of course. But it's not the preaching of the truth. Here's another example. There are a world of conspiracy theories in the world today. And all you have to do is turn on the internet or the television and you'll hear one. Preachers that get into that stuff that begin to promote this stuff. The Word of God is, is the truth we need. That's all. That's all we need to know. If you're chasing after these other rabbits that the Bible is not concerned with or doesn't address, you're not leading people to the truth. And so uh, these are the false teachers we need to watch out for. Again, I didn't make that list, but I think it's a good one. Now, Having said that, and now that you see there's a lot of different ways false teachers can come into churches, what advice does John have for us as people of God? In the passage we just read, he says several things. And the first one is, don't believe everything you hear in church. And it's true. It is true. I, I, I want to believe that we're a church where you can trust that you're going to hear the Word of God preached and taught wherever you go. I do believe that but it doesn't mean you let your guard down. John says, test the spirits in verse 1. Test the spirits. Remember, in the early church, it was a little different. Every church didn't necessarily have its own pastor. 
in that first generation. Sometimes they would have several people who had a gift for teaching and they would take turns speaking. And then along would come somebody, a, a traveling preacher, and they'd say, hey, brother, come on in. We'll, we'll give you a place to stay. You want to preach on Sunday? Sure, go ahead. Well, if he got up and said something that everybody thought, wait, that's not what I've heard before. John says, test the Spirit. Well, what does he mean when he says, test the Spirit? John gives us a test, and Jesus in Matthew 7.20 gives us a test. They're two different tests, and they both apply. John's test is, what do they teach about Jesus? What do they say about the Son of God? And that's a very apt test. In the first three centuries after Jesus left us, and the, and the church was growing, there were all kinds of heresies that sprung up about the character and identity of Christ. One was by a man named Arius. He was a bishop in the early church that taught that Jesus wasn't really divine. He was a good man. He knew a lot about God, more than you and me, but he wasn't actually divine. There was another teaching, it was called doceticism, that Jesus was divine, but he wasn't really human. He was like a spirit. You couldn't really touch him. You couldn't, you, you, you'd pass right through him because they couldn't accept the fact that God would become flesh. And then there was adoptionism. I've talked about this one where, yes, Jesus was human and yes, he was divine, but he was only divine because God adopted him as his son at a certain point. They believed that at the baptism of Jesus, when the clouds parted and you heard, this is my beloved son, that was God's gotcha moment, right? That was him saying, okay, now you're divine. And then before he went to the cross, his divinity left him. That was their teaching. John says, if you hear something in the scriptures that that says that Jesus isn't divine or that He's not fully human. If you hear anything that says Jesus is a sinful human just like us or that His death was not enough for our salvation, that He didn't rise from the dead. In essence, if there's any of the clear teachings of Scripture about Jesus that a teacher denies, you don't have to listen to them about anything else they say. Because what else matters? They could be right about all kinds of things, but if they're wrong about Jesus, they don't need to be listened to. They should be rejected. Now, the Lord's uh, test that He gives us in Matthew 7.20 is not about what a preacher says, it's about what a preacher does. In Matthew 7.20, Jesus has just said in, in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount that false teachers will arise among you, they'll be like wolves in sheep's clothing, but He says, you will know them by their fruits. Fruits does not mean the size of their following. Fruits means their character. And as I've said before, this is why we need to hold on loosely to celebrity preachers. Because no matter how much a, a celebrity preacher, a TV preacher, an author you read, no matter how much they help you and feed you, you don't know that person. You don't know their character. You don't know how they treat their spouse. You don't know what they're like when no one's looking. You don't know how they act when it's just them and their friends. I'm not saying we can't read their books or listen to them, their podcasts. I'm saying do not make that your main source of spiritual sustenance. This is why the local church is so important. This is why your pastor, as imperfect as he may be, is still the person you need to look to as your spiritual leader. Hold him accountable, absolutely, but know him. You can see how he acts. You can see how he comports himself. You can see the values and whether he practices what he preaches. And that's the point. If you have a pastor who's gifted, who's uh, what we would say anointed, we love that term, 
But if his words don't match his fruit, then he must be rejected. And that may sound harsh. Is he perfect? No. But if he's not perfect, he needs to at least be humble. He needs to at least be repentant. He needs to at least be open and honest. So don't believe everything you hear in church. Test the spirits. Number two, he says, he, tell, he reminds us, the devil has a vested interest in sowing false teaching in the church. Notice in verse 3, he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. We said earlier, a few weeks ago, John is the only writer in the Bible that uses that term, Antichrist. Now, I believe, and I think most Bible scholars and preachers believe, that this is the same character that, uh, that Paul is talking about when he talks about uh, the, the man of... Uh, the man of uh, I can't remember the term now. The man of perdition, yeah. And, and Jesus talks about the abomination that causes desolation, and He's referred to in several different ways in the Scriptures. But when John says Antichrist, you notice he's not talking about a future world leader. He's talking about what is in the world right now. He's talking about the spirit that says, I'm going to try to twist God's Word. And the point that John wants us to understand is, when you see a false prophet, when you see a false teacher, a charlatan, a, a heretic, uh, a divider, an abuser, all of those men are there because the devil is real. And because that's what he can do. He can't stop the preaching of the gospel. He can't stop the power of the gospel from saving people. But if he can disturb, divide, and distract churches with false teaching and with unworthy men in the pulpit, that's the closest thing he has to a victory. So you better believe that is his constant tactic. He has a vested interest in sowing false teaching in the church. Number three, false prophets find success in this world. He says in verse five, the world listens to them. The world flocks to them. And again, this is why we can't judge a, a preacher by the size of his following. That's not an indication necessarily that he's preaching the truth or that he is gifted by God. There's a difference between gifting and maturity. There's a difference between results and character. And when you have to choose, choose character every time. Choose the mark of the Holy Spirit in a person's life over the outward gifts. Is he tall? Is he good looking? Is he eloquent? Do people love hearing him? Is he funny? Uh, does he speak to me? Those are not the standards we should use. The standard is, does he preach the truth? Does he live what he preaches? Then next he says, God's word is the ultimate and eternal standard. So the, the end of the passage can be a little confusing. Let me, let me reread it to you. Uh, starting in verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Who is the we and the us in those sentences? He's not talking about Christians at large. He's talking about himself and the other apostles. He's saying, listen, you know how to spot a, a heretic. You know how to spot an abuser. You know how to spot a, a divider. They're different than us. They're different than Matthew. They're different than, than John. They're different from Paul. They're different from Peter. You've heard us. You've met us. You've seen our lives. You know what we teach. So apply that standard to them. Now, let me just say here, I would never say something like that. 
I would never stand before you and say, listen, if anybody says anything that, that sounds different from what I've told you, they're lying. Because if I do, I probably need to be fired or you know, at least kicked in the rear end. That's not, that, I'm a human, I'm doing my best. John was an apostle. He was officially chosen by Jesus in person and commissioned to go into the world and present the gospel and to write for us the truth. Therefore, when he spoke in his apostolic authority, when he wrote as an apostle, it was the word of God. No one today, no one in the last 2,000 years can say that. Anybody who tries should be rejected. So what he's saying when he says, hey, we're from God, they're not. Listen to us, not to them. All he's saying is, remember what the Bible says. Know God's word. And I know I said earlier that Southern Baptists are known for being people of the word, and, and I don't think that heresy will fly in this church, and I believe that, but that doesn't mean we can relax. We should be constantly in his word. We should be constantly learning, and we should be passing that down to the, the younger generations. They need to be schooled. They need to be taught. They need to see the, God's word, how it bears fruit in our lives, so they'll be inspired to read it. They need to be encouraged in the reading of it. Because when a church is full of people who are in the Word, that's a church where false teaching will not find root, will not find uh, any, any ground uh, to grow. And, and that's what God wants. We have this incredible resource in Scripture. If I told you that your favorite celebrity, whoever that was, an athlete, a movie star, politician, whoever it might be, if I told them, hey, he wrote you a letter, you'd be excited. You'd want to read it. God has written you a letter in his word. He's greater than any celebrity you can name. Why would we fail to devour that word? And you'll never get to the end of it. You'll never get to the point where, yeah, I figured that, that thing out. All your life you'll be learning. So keep it up. It, it will bear fruit. It will bear fruit in your life, and it will equip you to withstand falsehood. And the last thing I would say is, and this is a word of great encouragement to all of us, our God is greater. So while the devil can do his worst, and while he will have his minor victories, he will split a church, he will cause a pastor to fall, he will hurt people in a temporary sense, he cannot stop the Lord. Verse 4 is one of those great promises. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John wants us to understand that. He doesn't want us to, to think that it's a fair fight between God and Satan. He doesn't want us to think, and especially these people in the first century who were so discouraged after seeing some of their most gifted teachers move away. John says, listen, this is a tragedy. I understand, but, but God wins in the end. It doesn't change the final score. God still wins. There's a, there's a song written by Chris Tomlin uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, and the chorus goes like this. Some of y'all know this song. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then who could stand against? It's a great song. But a few years ago, I was at a student camp with our church, and I overheard uh, a young college-age man who was there as, uh, as a counselor to students from another church, not our church. And he was talking about how he's a student at a, a, at a major Christian university, 
And it may surprise you to find this out, by the way, as a side note. It's not uncommon for Muslim families to send their kids to Christian colleges. I learned this when I guest taught at Houston Baptist, which is now Houston Christian, but that's another note. There were four or five Muslim kids in the, in the class, and they asked more questions than anybody. And the reason why is a lot of these Muslim families think, well, I may not agree with Christianity, but at least they won't be exposed to the same kind of immorality on a Christian campus than they would be on a secular campus. So what this young man had experienced was, you know, these Muslim students, like all other students, have to go to chapel. And at chapel, they sang that song, Our God is Greater, Our God is Stronger, God, You Are Higher Than Any Other. And one of his fellow classmates who was Muslim came to him and he said, I find that, that song offensive. It's saying that your God is better than my God. And so this young man said, you know, I, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't sing that. We shouldn't cause offense. And I said to him, I think we should be all about being kind to others. I think we should be all about respecting their right to believe what they want to believe. But we can't hide the truth. It, it's not love to hide the truth that there's only one God. And we should never share that in an arrogant way. But we should not be ashamed of the fact that our God is higher, stronger, greater than any other. That is the truth of Scripture. And even when it's unpopular, and even when it hurts people's feelings, it must be taught. And when it doesn't get taught, or if it doesn't get taught faithfully, or if it gets taught by someone whose life doesn't match up to it, God will provide somebody better. We need to call out false teachers where we see them. Like I said, I hope that you never have to deal with this, but odds are you will. So be ready. That's part of us following God faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth because it is your truth that sets us free. I pray that we would be faithful to be people of the truth, that we would know your word for ourselves and that, that, that knowing your word would not make us puffed up, but would make us humble, but would also make us equipped to spot false teaching when we hear it. Let us be people of boldness and courage who speak the truth in love, who confront those who are teaching what is incorrect, who confront those who are stumbling away from your truth and your righteousness. I pray, O oh Lord, that we never would be people who divide churches, never falsely accuse, never become arrogant. But I pray that we would be bold. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.